Mach 3, give me cruise show on 2, 3, and 4. There's no line 1, actually. 6, 3. Mach 3, give me start, line 2. 5 electric. Mach 3, give me start, line 1, and crew show on 7 and 9. Line 1, crew show 7 and 9, my house. Hey, I'll do something. I hate weapons. Super up, line 3, Red Bull, avionics. Super Ops. Line 4 is code 3 for engine vibe. Fuck. Hey, so I started a Patreon because frankly, this stuff's getting expensive. Nothing will change the podcast or the blog if you don't subscribe, but if you want early access to episodes, monthly AMAs, episode shoutouts, voting on podcast topics, and all kinds of 20 Years Done gear, head over to patreon.com slash 20 years done. This month's top tier Patreon shoutout goes to Robbie Walker, Travis Barnes, Kevin Traw, JT Owens, Delinda Baker, and Matt Jones. Thanks for the support. Okay, so today we're joined uh, once again by Chief Master Sergeant Retired Curtis Ott. Uh, he's, uh, this is a topic that he's wanted to talk about that I touched briefly on without him in, in another episode, which I knew would, would spark his sort of uh, desire to revisit it. Uh, so I promised uh, I would do that because Curtis had been so kind with his time coming on episodes to talk about everything that I wanted to talk about. I feel it's only fair that he gets to come on and talk about his topic. So, Curtis, what do you want to talk about today? Um, today, I want to would like to just kind of talk about uh, resiliency um, and kind of how the Air Force approaches it, at least. And I have to, you know say a couple of things before we get started. I'm not an expert in generational studies or resiliency. My perspective comes from uh, my experiences as a chief master sergeant uh, that's led thousands of airmen, you know, and so as I, as I was traveling across the country, going to California uh, to see my, uh, my family out there, uh, I was, you know, taking some toys to my uh, grand nephew, if you will, um, on the road to California, just outside of, of uh, Las Vegas. I got a phone call from a chief friend of mine. He worked for me as a master sergeant. And he had ultimately made chief and he called me up and he wanted to thank me for my leadership over the years uh, and his, my support for him as he grew into be a chief. And he says, we're in a very bad place right now with suicide. And he said, I just wanted to reach out to those who mattered to me to thank them for their leadership and their understanding and all the support that they'd given. And we talked for a little bit and I hung up the phone essentially with him as I'm driving down the road. And my sister is a, uh, uh, professor at a college and part of hers is early childhood development. That's pretty much her, her expertise is early childhood development. And I called her up and we were talking and she says, yeah, there's a seminar on suicide prevention, uh, in, you know, three days. And I said, well, can I attend? She says, yes. So she signed us up for that. Now, once again, I'm no longer in the air force. I, am essentially retired. And so I just wanted to go see if anything 
was different than what we were being taught in the, in the Air Force. And as I sat through this lady talking about it, what I did learn is the Air Force's perspective on suicide prevention is no different than what I heard in that classroom. In fact, it was almost it was almost a carbon copy of all of the things that we we're taught uh, throughout our professional military education, through training, and all of those things. Those are the things that you know that she talked about, which I had learned. So I don't want to say I didn't learn anything from it, but what it did is it told me that what I had in my head as far as my thoughts about suicide prevention and resiliency probably wasn't too far off the mark. Right. Um, and I, and I think, you know, to understand, uh, issues today, uh, you have to understand the generations that you're, that you're, uh, talking about, you know, for instance, you know, we have the boomers, the gen X, the gen Y, the gen Z. And, uh, if I, if I could, I'd like to read from a, a book here in a little bit, uh, about, the Gen Z, or as she refers to them, is the iGen or the Gen B. And that's from 90, those, that generation runs from 95 to 2012. And that's essentially where the airmen are in the Air Force today. Right. That's their generation. And they make up to 24% of the U.S. population, yeah. uh, according, to, according to what her research says. So, and, and put into perspective, General C.Q. Brown is a, uh, is a boomer. Chief Bass is a Gen X. Most of the intermediate and mid-level leaders are millennials, and the airmen are the Gen Z or the iGen. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't realize that General Brown was a boomer. Yep, he's, 50, he's 59 years old. He was born in 1962. Holy cow. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's interesting. Yep. Yep. So that kind of that adds into uh, – uh, that perspective. And, and it's very important that we, we do understand that. Um, and, you know, what, what caught me one day is uh, Chief uh, Bass put out a, a picture as kind of a meme, if you will. And it said on there, you can't raise your airmen as your supervisors raised you because your supervisors raised you for an air force that no longer exists. There's some truth to that, but there's also some fallacy into that. And the mission of the Air Force has never changed. It's still to fly, fight, and win. It's still the mission of the Air Force today. None of that has changed. So that Air Force has still exists since 1947. You know, their, their mission is still the same. What has changed, of course, like anything else, are the people that make up the Air Force. And if they're applying that to that Air Force no longer exists, maybe they should have said, you know, those airmen no longer exist, but the Air Force still exists in its current mission, if you want to look at it in that perspective. And inside of that uh, mission, you have the leaders. And if the leaders are certain leaders, then a servant leader is the same as they were yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if you do know what that means, then time, place, and circumstances really doesn't matter. Right. It's all about the leader, you know? So. No, I think it's a good point. Like, and this is also why you shouldn't lead by memes, I'll say, which is ironic 
<laughs> because probably 50% of my page is means that I've gleaned from Reddit or other places. Uh, but I, I, I use it to kind of break up the seriousness of some of the topics we talk about. But memes aren't very good at conveying nuance or, you know, a, a deeper level of understanding. It's usually dark humor, sarcastic, ironic, and all these sort of things. And one or two sentence inspirational phrases are good for over your doorway to the kitchen, but it's it's not a good way to signal to 320,000 people the culture you're creating, I'll say. Right, right. And and uh, that's an unchecked that's an unchecked um, verbiage, if you will. Now, if she'd have wrote it herself, then I'm sure she'd have, you know, there'd have been more time taken to really analyze the words that were used. And, you know, I, I, I think she was looking for the punchline before the, you know, the story leading up to it. So yeah, um, but I don't want to uh, camp out there anyway, because I think yeah, we have a no. lot to talk about. We, we do. And uh, if you, if you don't mind, I'd like to read from uh, Jean M. Twenge's uh, book generation me and then i'll read another one from her her okay. other book and it the the other book's title is extremely long so i really won't read you know give you the title of that one i mean it's really long okay um, but in this in this book she she's first of all she's a an expert in the generational studies and sciences behind it and she talks about a christian smith um uh and what he talked about as far as moral individualism. And he, she said, she goes on that to say that Smith concludes that most emerging adults seem unaware of any source of moral reasoning outside of themselves. Uh, instead, the world consists of so many individuals that we, that each individual decides for themselves what is and isn't moral and immoral. And so, um, in my in my mind, if you're if you can't if you're deciding what's moral and immoral, uh, you're going to run into some some challenges uh, when you're dealing with other people. Okay, because what you think is moral may be immoral to somebody else, but you have to have um, tolerance to accept that other person's morality or immorality, if you will, as long as it's not illegal. You know what I mean? Really. Right can't delve into the uh, uh, illegal nature of it. Um, and because of, you know, some of the, you know, what, what he had said that uh, uh, everyone should uh, tolerate everyone else, take care of their own business and hopefully get along. She goes on to say that this is a rager's edge of modern individualism. Tolerance is great, but perhaps uh, not when each individual is free to decide for himself which rules to follow and helping others is rarely one of those rules is That's how she looks at the generation me. Yeah. Now she goes on next paragraph is, is kind of where I'm where it captured my attention. And she says, what about all the gen Mears who are serving in the military and who served in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, when we're all sitting home uh, safe at home, military service can be, uh, certainly be an example of self-sacrifice and can collectivism. However, the data suggests that Gen Me service members are the exception to that rule. And she kind of goes on to say that there's, you know, 
that interviewed that a good portion of the Gen Mears today don't have no aspirations to join the military at all. And being 24% of our population, that kind of folds into why they're having a difficult time recruiting and retaining. Once again, I would say just beyond the 24% of the population, that 24% is in the prime age range for military service, right? Yes. So you're talking about of your military, of of the viable military recruits are probably like 80%, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And in her other book, um, she talks about the new mental health crisis. That's chapter four. It's called Insecure the new mental health crisis. And when Snapchat and Instagram and all those and Facebook all came on, the preponderance of what we saw were people taking selfies and posting it and they were showing their, their best side. And, you know, you've heard the stories of, of kids taking 200 photographs to find the perfect one to put on Instagram, you know, so they can show how, good they looked or, you know, the outside good that they looked. And she says, I Jenners look so happy online, making goofy faces on Snapchat and smiling in their pictures on Instagram, but dig deeper. And, and reality is not so comforting. I Jen is on the verge of the most severe mental health crisis for young uh, people in decades on the surface, though, everything is fine. Well, now you make me feel guilty about sending those five pictures before we start recording, Curtis. I was showing off my home gym. Oh, so. <laughs> well, okay. I don't think I don't know. That doesn't I don't count. Think that's, that okay. doesn't. That does. That does. Yeah, that I wasn't in the picture, so I guess the, I guess it doesn't yeah. fall under that category. Yeah, no, no, it it doesn't. You you know, and once again, you were just showing me what all what the things, was exciting in your life you know and the things i was doing to here, avoid schoolwork yes that's what yeah. i was actually showing well you know maybe when we're done here i'll show you some of the things that i've been doing out in my shop that you know uh making toys you know i, I love making toys uh wooden toys so so, so you kind of talked about how if i can sum up the two sort of quotes you kind of mm-hmm. talked about how um the the gen mirrors and the, and the igen which those mm-hmm. are They're both same. considered gen z is that yeah Okay, so uh, yeah, from from 1995 to 2000. I'm just going to use Gen Z so I don't get confused with the different. Sure. But I also understand that those particular monikers are intentional to talk about um like Gen Mears that was in the in the book excerpt that talked about the individualism, the my morals are what I adhere to, not your morals type of deal, which explains why it's jit it's labeled Gen Mir in that particular context and the i gen right talks about social media and technology and how that gives a skewed sort of perspective of what your peers are experiencing Mm -hmm. in their life, which creates this sort of self-looking ice cream cone of image competition. So that explains the iGen sort of uh, moniker. But uh, so that probably summed up um, those two things fairly well under, and then I'll put it under the Gen Z banner. Um, But also I just want to tease out also that you talked about how, this generation is the is the biggest chunk for military recruitment and um this generation is facing according to that doctor this generation is facing 
uh, a mental health crisis broadly yes. outside just the military, but in that generation as a whole. Right. And in, and in that book, she delves deeper into that. And I, I really don't want to get into it because, uh, you know, if, if you really want to understand it, you, you really need to read the book. Uh, but what it did is it opened my brain to, okay, so what I, as I led and as a chief in the Air Force, you know, uh, her book essentially did a lot of um, validating my leadership uh, per- perspective and I was, you know, quite happy as I'm, re- I shouldn't say quite happy. I was happy with my decisions in my leadership role as I went through and read through her book. Now, I did learn some things that I didn't necessarily do right, but I was, I'm a human being. And of course, I didn't do everything perfect and I didn't do everything right. And there were some things that, you know, I think I might have wanted to do differently, but everything happens for a reason. Mm-hmm. And we continue on uh, down that path of what we know to work and what doesn't work. Um, but today, uh, with our, with, you know, the issue of resiliency, I guess we need to really define what it means to be resilient. I guess, you know, you be flexible. Don't take the blame unless you're the one that fucked it up. If you, if you're the one that fucked Of course, you need to take blame for that. You need to take ownership of that. You need to take responsibility. And don't try and deflect that onto somebody else. Understand what you did wrong and correct it and move on. But in that, inside of that, a leader needs to understand that the people made that mistake and that people are going to make mistakes and accept the mistake as a point of which to learn from that quote unquote mistake. Um, and, and in that you need to stay true to yourself and stay true to your, your, your mission, whether that's the air force mission or the, your mission in life um, and adversity. And, you know, there's, there's that whole adversity thing that we probably need to talk about, you know, and adversity and not just, life, but in dealing with people, you know, um, not everybody accepts you, you know, it's human nature. Not everybody's going to accept you, uh, just because you think they should, they're not going to accept you because they have their own bi- built-in biases. Right. Um, and of course, you know, in the, in, under the adversity, you know, being challenged physically and mentally is important in your development. You have to be challenged. Otherwise, you don't necessarily, your brain doesn't necessarily develop if you don't overcome a, a challenge of some kind. Um, you know, and as that manifests itself into the Air Force, you know, did you internalize that QA failure or did you seek to understand it? You know, how we're raised is digs into a lot of, of these mental and physical uh, development aspects. Mm-hmm. And people don't want to lay that on the parent because, you know, for the m- many different reasons why you don't want to accuse a parent of not being a good parent mm-hmm. because everybody raises their children the best way that they know how. 
But when you have parents that are, you know, they, and she mentions in there, the helicopter parents mm-hmm. that hover over their kids. And the moment that they look like they're about to do something wrong, they stop them and they don't let them do the thing wrong. And so they never learn how to confront that challenge, how to get over that hurdle, get over that um, uh, thing that's in front of them. And they pick them up and they put them over the, over the wall or whatever, instead of letting them learn how to deal with the confrontation in front of them. And you'll see that, you know, part of growing up, you know, we have kids that are playing ball um, and what they're finding out a lot of times is they can't find coaches. Why can't they find coaches? Well, they can't find coaches because the parents are the problem. Mm -hmm. They think that they need to tell the coach or the umpire what they're doing wrong. Once again, your perspective sitting on the, on the, in the bench or in the the bleachers watching the sport is to watch and to let things unfold and let the children learn from them for themselves. But if you, if you're doing all of the learning for your kids, when they become adults and they join the air force and they're confronted with a, a chief master sergeant who's saying, you know what you did could have killed mm-hmm. that pilot. They don't understand that, that what they did was wrong. They're expecting some sort of validation or somebody to make up the, the, uh, it's not a big make deal. It right. Yeah. But yeah. Right. And, and, I, and I'll say make also right there's two outcomes there. There's one where they are, looking and i'm saying broadly obviously there's gonna be exceptions to this so i'm not trying to paint an entire generation with the with a broad brush or anything um and i think there's other generations that would fall into this logic trap as well i think it has a lot mm-hmm. more to do with upbringing than just a strict generation which is what curtis is saying but there's like kind of two options there in the in the hypothetical situation where you didn't do something properly and might have cost a pilot's life and you're dragged in front of your chief to explain yourself or for the ass chewing the one is you're going to be looking for someone to soften the blow, to make it easier to digest, to blame shift, to make it so you weren't wholly responsible. And then the second thing is, if you accept responsibility for that, if you had a lifetime of um, where there was always someone there to soften the blow or make it easier or to push you across that finish line or to or whatever, you're going to you're not going to have a a emotional toolkit to pull from to to really navigate the the blame and the guilt and the shame that you're going to experience if you do accept responsibility for that event like both of those are bad outcomes right yes right and and, you know um my belief and there may be a lot of people out there who will disagree with me but my belief Adversity is the best method to increasing your resiliency. That's from where I came from. Um, Now, leaders and parents and all of that can, you know, can help. They just don't need to, they don't need to create the adversity. 
it's adversity is going to happen That's no fair. matter what. Nobody needs to create an adverse situation. It's just going to happen. Some people don't understand that. Some people like to live in chaos. And because they like to live in chaos, they think everybody around them needs to live in chaos. And some people aren't ready for the adversity that's being uh, confronted with them. And what leaders need to do is help them through the process of uh, dealing with the adversity. And, and what I'll do is I'll get to a program that's being um, put together right now that's as it's gaining more momentum uh, from Aviano Air Base and um, one Are of my talking former- Airmen for Life. Airman for life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to town, man. Yeah, yeah. I really want yeah, to talk yeah. to that guy, but I also don't want to uh, destroy his career with the bad rep of this podcast. No. So, okay. Yeah. So, um, uh, I think there's some good in it. I also think there's some challenges in that. Um, uh, I am all for airmen helping air- airmen all, by all means, you know. Um, but, you know, Kind of back to the, you know, you know, learning about adversity or dealing with adversity. Uh, my personal perspective in why I don't have a more severe case of PTSD is because I was raised in a butcher shop from the age of three years old until, you know, I left home at 19. I was raised essentially raised in the butcher shop. I watched, you know, some what people would consider very gory stuff. To me, it was just a, a fact of life. And when I joined the Air Force and saw things that people would have considered uh, violent and gory, my adversity that I overcame as a child, you know, seeing all of these things. Help me deal with it. Seriously, I should have, you know, high levels of PTSD based on what I've seen, what I've, you know, where I've been and my life, um, my life in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. But I think that it comes about not just from, from dealing with our learning and getting through those adversities, but also, you know, I'm not the firstborn in the family. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I didn't have any of the worries of the firstborn child. I was the second uh, child in the family. And so a lot of the stresses, a lot of the pressures weren't applied to me, except in the fact that, you know, I can, I, you know, kind of look back on it. And my sister was, is extremely smart and had no issues in school. We had the same teachers growing up through life. And I would get the, you know, why can't you be more like your sister mm. when it came to studies? And when it came to sports, it was more like my dad was a, um, uh, when he played baseball and basketball, he was, you know, a played it, you know, at the state level, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was an all stater for both of them. And then people would ask me why I wasn't uh, more like my father when it came to sports. I chose to disregard those perspectives. You know, I still remember them. I, they're still part of my life, but I, I essentially chose to disregard their aspect of why I'm not like them because I'm me. I am who I am. And, 
you know, accept me for who I am and I'm going to work very, very hard in my life. When did you form that sort of um, ideology? <laughs> it was when I was a chief. Okay. Right. Because as a yep. teenager, that's nearly impossible nope. to form nope. because of the ego and all that stuff and the insecurities and uh, you know probably what? hit hard at the time, right? Uh, at, the, at the moment that it came out of their mouth, it was very disconcerting. And it, right. you know, I thought, well, you don't know who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't know who I am. You may think you know who I am, but that's not who I am. And I was pretty congenial, if you will, going through school over things like that. I never let things bother me, you know, what, what people thought of me. I, I never, I never cared. And I didn't learn about this until later in life. I didn't care about what other people thought of me, you know? And then as it, as I was raising in rank, there was some of that care about what people thought of me, but not really, you know, if you accept me, you accept me, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to give you hundred percent of my day accept me for who I am. If you don't accept me for who I'm, then that's how it is, but that's who I am, you know? And I'd like to think that I or would like to, I would hope that pe more people would look at that, but going back to what, you know, the author of the book said, you know, that they're worried about what people, how people look, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, it's like, you know, Therefore, so as likes to, as they say, likes to look good in the shower. That means that, you know, they like to look good even when, you know, things aren't good, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, and in this, in this adversity thing, you know, we kind of talked about, you know, uh, airmen for life, but the air force is air force and its programs. Gosh, darn, you know, air force creates programs, and some of them are good and some of them just don't gain the traction quality air force. As they said, a quality air program, quality air force destroyed a quality force. Um, AFSO 21, you know, some of those larger than life programs, did they help? Well, from my perspective, some of them didn't help at all. All they were, were, you know, uh, catchphrases. And as I like to say, you know, some leader peed on a fence post to, you know, to mark their territory for the Air Force. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, and so I talked to uh, an AFSO 21 expert uh, on episode 40, um, Mark Adams. And I wish I had, I wish I had thought of that because AFSO 21 at its core, I think is a good concept. You're talking about continuous improvement. Let's eliminate the waste. Let's streamline the process. Let's give time back. Let's become more efficient. But there's also interplay between AFSO 21 and careerism, where yes. some people are doing it just for the status of making it a change for the sake of change. But that also goes to what Mark talked about. You know, he talked about how he was asked to streamline PhaseDoc, and he went to PhaseDoc and he pulled all this data, and they were outperforming the rest of the Air Force, and their processes had very, I mean, he could find waste, but it was very, very, very little waste. Mm -hmm. um, but he had enough probably clout to go back to that um, officer and go, here's what the data shows. You're not going to, the juice isn't worth the squeeze here. I could spend two months on this and I'm going to get like one or 2% faster. And, and we're actually hitting our targets anyway. 
but at those two months I could be doing this. And luckily he got to do that because he had this portfolio of successes and he was well known, but I very much worry about the AFSO 21 continuous improvement as a buzzword where people are doing it for the sake of doing it, yes. uh, which might also go into the whole where at the time they wanted every single senior and CEO to become a green belt, which also required in order to get a green belt, you had to do a process improvement yep. event. And yep. if you have, I don't know how many senior and CEOs are where there were, there were obviously a lot. You're talking about mm -hmm. every master and above, I don't know, maybe a hundred, 200 or 150. Mm -hmm. I don't know the sure. number. Depending upon the size of the squadron. Yeah. Well, it was group. It was a group mandate. So you're talking, oh. it was big. I mean, there was like 1500 people in that group. So mass sure. sergeants will say maybe, maybe a hundred, I think is a safe bet. That's a hundred mm -hmm. continuous improvement events that have to happen in order to get that certification. And that's where you get those type of things. And right. that very well could be the, where the air force takes a really good idea if used in moderation or, or, you know, it's a surgical tool to fix things, not a blunt force trauma sort of thing. And they just ran away with it where it, it very much too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing in literally everything in life. Right. Right. And what you kind of said right there was micromanagement. I have an episode on that too, by the way. I know. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, but that's, that's what this is. I mean, yeah. when, when uh, I was uh, at a base and they came in and they tried to redo my um, support section because they said it wasn't efficient enough through the course of their um, work, they learned that um, what they did is they took a fairly efficient, running support section and made it essentially in my brain, less efficient, really and truly. Right. They made it less efficient. Um, and it, it kind of made my, made me scratch my head and think, you know, and it was, and it, it was exactly what you said. And somebody had to do something yep. for their green belt and that's what they chose. And it really didn't, help and if they would have let the airmen in the support section figure out ways to make it work then it probably would have become more efficient you know and instead what they ended up doing was forcing the airmen into something that they had no buy-in into and it essentially became less efficient because all they would say is new program new process yeah, that probably also goes back to what Mark Adams talked about. Also, I'm sure Mark's listening, so shout out. Hey, Mark. But um, where he would get the three level in the shop as part of his facilitation, mm -hmm. where let me get these people that are the experts or that know what really happens, where he was talking about, oh, well, I saw they went to their locker to get parts, and the chief's like, we don't keep lockers in our parts. He's like, um, you do, because your three level went to his locker and got parts. Like, that's the reality. <laughs> Right. And, and if you're showing up to do a continuous improvement and you don't have any boots on the ground for people that actually know, like what goes on in paper and what goes on in reality in an aircraft maintenance unit, I've never been in, I've never been in an aircraft maintenance unit where on paper and in reality is the same thing. That's why there's, there's LCAT, o ORI, o UCI, LCAT, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever the, the moniker is for the letters now. I know I sound like I'm saying Buck Sergeant because I know none of those uh, acronyms are the right acronyms anymore, but here I am. Uh, but, you know, 
the annual readiness or biannual readiness sort of inspections. That's why there's prep for that. You have to like reteach yourself what you're supposed to be doing on paper. Uh, and if you're not, if you're not looping in the people that know that process, the quote unquote broke, if you don't, if you're not looping in the people that know the quote unquote broken process, one, you're probably not capturing all the data you need to capture in order to do the real improvement. And two, like you said, you're probably not going to get buy-in because they feel like their voice wasn't heard. They weren't included in it. And that someone from the outside is coming in to make it better. Um, and then it very well could be better, but since you didn't include them in it, they're going to drag their feet. They're not going to want to engage in it because there's like animosity, but I know we're not going to talk continuous improvement. So no, we're talking and, Air Force programs broadly, right? But, but I kind of want to go uh, circle back around back here to, you know, the locker thing, any chief that doesn't know that there are lockers and that there are aircraft parts in those lockers is either totally disconnected or just doesn't want to believe the truth. Okay. Period. End of story. That's it. I have known that there were people who warehouse parts in their lockers and all I could do, all I could do is do a periodic inspection to make sure that, you know, we cleared all that stuff out and turned it back in because we knew that it wasn't authorized. Just do it. You know, nobody's trouble. Just get rid of the stuff, you know, and, and in that, I like to say that I was a lazy leader. When I say I was a lazy leader, my perspective was, is if you think it's right to do, then do it, do that thing. And that, that kind of goes with, you know, that resiliency, you know, what's wrong. If you're asking me permission to do something that's right and you have to wait on me to tell you that it's right then there is a much larger problem when you have the, the person who knows it's right asking permission from somebody to do the right thing. Yeah, that's a good that point. That leader should just say, if it's the right thing to do, why are you asking me permission to do the right thing? That's a good point. So I want to I go back to the Airman for, for Life thing. I, sure. I know you kind of said that it's, it's good, but... What I guess, what have you heard about it? And what are your thoughts? Okay, so here, here's what I know. And um, uh, I know the person who is, uh, who's kind of running, it. running this mm -hmm. thing yeah, uh, pretty well. Um, and I reached out to her and asked her about it. And in my, in my brain, it's a great concept. So here's what it has. It has, uh, it's a 20 course core curriculum. And it teaches from nutrition to stress. And I'm sure that there's, um, uh, you know, uh, physical fitness and in, in that mm -hmm. as well to help uh, leave the, alleviate that issue. It happens four hours. Uh, you're the, the, an individual gives up four hours of their week, you know, once a month. And it happens two times a week on Monday and Friday. So essentially, uh, every week they're doing 25% of their, uh, force strength, if you will. Right. Um, and, and in that, uh, they're conducting, you know, and, and her perspective was, is if you're training somebody or if you're, you shouldn't wait for someone to need something before you help them. You should be 
providing them continuous forward movement. And I equate that in my very small psychological brain is that you don't go to a psychiatrist and that may not be the direction they're going, but you don't go (laughs) to a psychiatrist once and expect to be cured for life, or I shouldn't say psychiatrist, a counselor and be cured for life. You continuously see a counselor to help get you through some of the life's challenges. And I think that's the perspective that they're heading down is that, you know, continuous life process, helping people help themselves deal with the stresses of the light of their personal life and dealing with the stresses that come about from uh, a military life right. and a military life, as you and I both know, is not a job. It is literally a way of life. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't in tune with that way of life, you're going to have a very hard time adjusting. And they're trying to help them through the inju- adjustments to you know the military life and dealing with their own personal lives. Uh, and as she was explaining it to me, I said, no, how can you, how do you are able to do that? And she says, well, COVID taught us a lot of things about ourselves. And she said, we found that 50 to 60% while we were down 50 to 60% manning, we were still able to make the mission happen. And they're working with ops. And we've talked about this before where, you know, it's important that you work with ops to take care of and make sure that you're meeting their needs so you can do these other things. What kind of concerned me just a little bit was when the, you know, they tout that, you know, we learned from COVID that we can do the mission with 50 to 60% of the mission. You talk to the wrong person about that. <laughs> and they're going to cut And you Manning. know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> Brother, you, you know that that's, that's, that was the first thing that came into my mind is the hair in the back of my neck stood up when they said, you know, they could do the, oh, well, holy but I, but I know, think those are, those are words you don't say out loud. I think for this program, and I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I want to say my knee jerk was that, but that's a really easy narrative a legislature can create where we're overpaying our personnel for the, for yes. the military. But I think the reason that they can do it, and this is me going on a limb, I think the reason they can do it with 50, 50 or 60% people is because um, – that time they're giving back is recharging people's batteries. It's very akin to if you work someone 12 hours versus eight hours, the reality is you either get the same productivity or less because when like there's a big difference between a scheduled eight hour shift that ends at eight hours, a eight hour shift that unbeknownst to me extends to 12 hours and a shift where I walk in knowing it will be 12 hours, either because the workload is so much that I've figured out there's going to be 12 hours or we're on mandatory 12s because the commander said we're, we're drowning or whatever. Like when I go into a shift or even swing shift, like, I don't know. I mean, you're my chief sounding board. So I always ask, like, how the hell, hell do chiefs not know these things? But the reason swing shift is so good is because they have within their control the ability to leave at three hours. Like 
if they work hard enough, and, and sometimes it's outside their control because a billion jets are broke or whatever, but swing shifters, every night's a gamble. They know that if they clear the plate, it'll be a cutback. Or if they clear the mm -hmm. plate enough, it'll be a cutback for me. And then tomorrow I'll stay late and then Jeff can go and then and whatever. And that's what drives every single day for them to work so hard. At least this is what I experienced as an expediter. If I can clear my plate today, I'm not rolling over anything to tomorrow. And if we get lucky tomorrow, we're going to have an early night. Like you can see, here's the schedule maintenance. Mm -hmm. Here's this, here's phase, whatever it is. But if you can look forward enough and clear as much today, there might be a good night on the horizon. Yeah. That creates this tremendous engine on swing shift to drive we need to get everything fixed. We're going to clear the plate. Yeah, you get to fly sorties. And that's a great feeling when you like get a jet fixed and produce sorties. But to be perfectly honest, me as a swing shifter, I like swing shifts. I like the gamble. I like to have the control over my fate because day shift, you have no control over your fate. You show mm -hmm. up at this time, swing shift will relieve you at this time. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you do between those two hours because when swing shift comes in, you're going home type of deal. Um so like when you're showing up to a shift and you think you have control over your destiny sort of thing, um, you work really hard. If you show up to a shift and then it surprises you with a 12, you've already worked hard up to that. And then you're still mm -hmm. of the mindset of if I can clear my plate, I won't have a 12 tomorrow. So let me let me hump this out and get it done. But if you show up and you know it's a 12, I'll tell you what, nope. I've never been less productive at yep. all, ever. I I. I absolutely 100% agree with that. 100% straight down the street. I totally agree with that. I used to fight putting my people on 12-hour shifts because I knew it was non-productive time. I knew it because I worked swing shift for many, many years. And I've worked 12-hour shifts. And knowing that because you work 12-hour shifts, just because you have more people, you know, quote unquote, more people on ship doesn't mean that you're going to be any more productive because everybody thinks that everybody else is going to do the Yeah, do everybody the work. slows down. Effort. And we have, 12 hour, we have 12 hours to do this. We have 12 hours to do this and we're not going to go home until our 12 hours is up. That means that nothing is going to get done. And, you mm -hmm. know, essentially we're going to spin our wheels for 12 hours. I would put, I put people on 12 hours to work a problem. For instance, I had uh, in Korea, I had an aircraft that we had an aircraft that uh, uh, departed flight. Okay. It had a flight departure. And so we had to impound the airplane. Me and you're going to come to blows on this. And I'll so tell you that right now. Well, and so I didn't want 15 different people touching that airplane, but I knew that, we had to get this airplane fixed. Now I would put a team on it and they would work a 12 hour shift. And that was it. That was the only thing that they did when they were done, when they had the problem solved, how much time that they had, I would try to give them okay. as much of that time back as I, could. you know, I knew I wasn't going to, I knew I wasn't going to give them hundred percent of their time back. And I would tell them, I'm not going to be able to give you hundred percent of your time back, but we're going to give you your time back. I need you to fix this problem. I need you to fix this problem. And in the end, 
I'm going to reward you with time back because that's all I can really do, you know. And in Korea, there's really not much to do when you're off time except I'm giving you the authority to get on the, you know, the Wolfpack wheels and head up to yeah. uh, Osan for, you know, you know, for a few extra days. It's yeah. really all I could give them. I could pretty good them deal anymore. though. That's a pretty yeah, good deal. I, yeah, I couldn't pay them anymore, but I knew that in order for me to get this done, there had to be, you know, I hate saying this stick and carrot, but that's kind of what it was, is I needed them to to work through the problem, but I was gonna on the backside, gonna give them the time that they that that they deserved because they did what they did. And I'm certain that you're gonna say, you know, we're gonna come to blows because you know, you put them on 12s and that's it. No. You know, that, that I, I, I knew I, I'm pretty certain that's what you're going to say, wasn't it? Yeah, we were going to come to blows because I don't believe in the idea of putting people on 12s for impounds, except your model works. And uh, a gentleman, uh, Bill Jennings, who I served with, who has reached out and we're looking to do an episode. I think I think he was struggling to find a topic, but I think it's going to end up being impound management and troubleshooting is probably what we'll yes. do. And that'll probably be a good chat. So, hmm. uh, Bill, if you're listening, hit me up, and we can we can figure that out. Um, but I think I think if going back to the Airman for Life thing, I think if it's phrased, the reason we're getting this level of productivity is because we're giving time back. Because mm-hmm. no one seems to I don't know, no one seems to understand that when you squeeze every single ounce of time out of your people, that retention goes in the toilet first. Mm-hmm. Um, mental health goes in the toilet yes. along with retention yep. and then productivity also goes in the toilet. Like all the successful companies, you know, some of those companies mm-hmm. out there have infinite time off. Yes. Like Netflix is like any day you want to take off, you can take off forever. I just, you know, you just meet milestones for your projects and yep. literally you can take any time that you want. Yep. And they found their productivity goes through the roof because if work life balance kind of normalizes, I know that's not feasible in the military, but the lesson there is, if you give time back to your people, you're going to get higher quality work in a higher quantity as well. So if, if that person is listening um, right now, I just recommend that it's a well-articulated sort of uh, point to be made. So I guess the gist of the Airman for Life is they give a little bit of time back every week, and it's a broad sort of program that does like cooking in the dorm room, mindfulness. Uh, I think there's yoga, there's PT associated with it. There's mm-hmm. development. I think f- professionally, you're talking about leadership stuff. I think there's also technical development if they so choose. So it's not just this. It's a. It's like, I know this sounds, I, this is off brand for this podcast. I think truly Airman for Life is the whole Airman concept. It's let's develop the person and the professional both both technical and leadership wise. And in the end, we're going to get more than what we've invested in time here. I, I, I agree. And that's kind of what I was, what is getting at the only, the only concern that I had with the entire thing was by somebody saying out loud, you know, they were able to do the mission with X number of people. Other than that, you know, regeneration of the mind is extraordinarily important to, to somebody that is, you're trying to get, production out of you have to regenerate their mind and you have to help them because some people don't can't get there from here that's fair on their own so i think and and honestly i would like to see uh the professional military education start dipping into some of this airman for life some of their 
some of their core curriculum things. I think that would probably also benefit the, the force as a whole. Because here's the thing. There's only nine bases that are accepting this. This individual that I know, um, Ashley Lett, uh, is, you know, kind of ramrodding this, if you will. Uh, she's one of the one of the primary uh, individuals associated with this, and she's going to make this part of her permanent job, if you will. Um, briefed the chief mass sergeant in the Air Force on this. And, and I can understand why they don't jump on something right away because from my perspective as a, an evaluator and somebody who was given programs as benchmarks, one of the things that always I would always question was is they would say, this program works great. Yes. And the person that is running it is the stakeholder. And when that person leaves, who do you have that's going to be, you know, as good as the person that is running the program today to fill in when that person ultimately PCSs and goes somewhere else yeah, and takes I, his program with them? I'll tell you what, there's a lot of issues there. And and I've talked to the people that are running Emerald for Life over in Aviano, and I was I was very impressed. I, I really liked what they were doing. I liked their yes. motives. I, you know, I know sometimes that I and sometimes you or sometimes we collectively get labeled as, uh, you know, checking grenades from the outside or being bitter. <laughs> but this is like this is something that I was like, this has a lot of potential to do a lot of good. But I worry, like most things that it can get co-opted. Like, I think it's hard to look at these programs with, you know, narrowly without understanding the environment that they will cultivate in, which is, in my opinion, the opinion of just uh, a retiree sitting in a room yelling at another retiree is careerism is a real problem in the Air Force where motives for promotion outweigh motives for uh, proper leadership. I think sometimes those sometimes yes. are at odds with each other. And I worry that a program that is so focused on substance that also does have a good appearance because the underlying substance is very good. I worry that someone that doesn't understand um, that it matters that like the people that created this in Aviano, they created it with the understanding of they were willing to put their career on the line to make it happen. Yep. And they were going yep. to battle for it. Yes. And that's how it came. That's how it was birthed. Yes. That somebody was like, I will implode my career because I want to do right by my people. Mm -hmm. And there's, I think the reality is there's not, that is not the majority mindset in the military because we, we fostered a culture where it's risk averse, yep. where promotion is the only metric that matters. And when you combine those two things, and then you're going to seed this program throughout the Air Force, I worry that the first day there's an MND, mm -hmm. a commander's going to pause or reduce or do all these things, this Airman for Life program at another location, one that is does not have the the sort of 
core character required to that the the originators kind of had in order to create this and push it that when this becomes uh mainstream or or broadly as a air force wide program you're right you're going to have pockets where the individual leader or the individual person driving the program it's succeeding because of their grit determination yeah. their faith in the program their their belief that taking care of airmen is more important because in the end you're going to get mission accomplishment by taking care of the airmen you're going to pockets of those people but when you have this hodgepodge patchwork of good leaders and bad leaders and you're giving both of them the same program what you're going to get is the airmen from I mean, I don't know, Travis, I'm just citing Travis. Let's say there's a bad leader at Travis and there's an airman there and the airman for life program is a box check. There's not in-depth mm -hmm. conversations. Anytime someone, anytime the expert comes up and say, Hey, I need airman snuffy. He's pulled out of airman for life, which re really lets them know that they can't rely on it to be true. They're losing out on this productivity. They're going to, all of those people in that unit are going to have a very bad perception of airman for life. They're going to, when they see the chief master on the Air Force touting it on social media, they're going to be bothered by it because that's image. It's not how it really is. It's kind of BS. And then when they move to a base with Airmen for Life where it's good, they already have a, a, a poor conception. So, like, I don't have a solution here. Like, I think no. Airmen for Life should be everywhere, but I think mm -hmm. the people that are holding this little ember, you know, like when you're holding an ember and like a little bit, it's really fragile. Like, I think it's really important to be protective of the program and of the quality of the program and selective of who gets to sort of run it. Or I, I don't know if that's even possible, but um, yes. this, this needs to have the, the, the real weight and authority of air force leadership. So that way um, just, you know, it's I'm just saying it's fragile and I'm worried about it. It, it, it really is. Uh, and I, I agree with absolutely everything that you're saying. And it, and it, it's good for the airmen. It's very, very good for the airmen. I just don't want it to, you know, it to go down the, the path that I've seen over you know the 30 years that I was in the path that it would that it would ultimately take which would be devastating to airmen is typically the path that we see it becomes this great big thing and then we got everybody 100% on it and then it just disappears into the into the woodwork this has to be an enduring program that lasts an Air Force lifetime. And it needs to be taken seriously by the leaders as a, you know, as a serious, legitimate program. But I also don't want to see them cramming it down people's throats, which always happens. The airmen have, have developed this in and of themselves. And once again, I go back to my lazy leadership and you're take care of it. Just, you know, you handle this. You came up with it. You handle it. I will give you the support that you need and the um, uh, technical and moral support or the tools that you need to, to do it. You know, 
and let it run, you know, just let it, let, let them take care of it because they're going to come up with ways to change it, to alter it, to make it better, to improve it. And they don't need somebody to approve that. Don't have to have somebody come in and say, well, because this is flying under my, my umbrella of leadership, uh, I will be the uh, approver of everything that you all are doing. Well, the moment that that happens, and I can't even tell you how many times that I've seen that happen, <laughs> it gets crushed and yep. people lose motivation. And I don't ever want to see this program lose that kind of motivation. You know, the one program that comes to my mind uh, where it was a really good program and it was there for the right reasons, but got crammed down everybody's throat was called the Maintenance Resource Management Program. Uh, you know what? So that I was an instructor in 2007, 2008, when that program was created by that, I think it was a guard colonel, I think is who he was or something like that. It, it, it essentially originated out of, I'm going to say it was the Dover C5 crash. And uh, I went and attended the training at, uh, at, at Dover. And that's where I went to get the training. And it was, it was a three-day course. They said, well, everybody needs this. Well, they weren't going, willing to put everybody through three days. So what they did is they made it, you know, like a two-hour course mm. or something like that. And you miss the entire uh, perspective when you reduce something. For instance, and I'll, come back, I'll circle back to this, but one of the biggest uh, uh, things that bothered me was is that uh, the – Aircraft Maintenance and Munition Officers School at Nellis uh, is a very good, is, was a very good school, but the leaders didn't think it was that great because they never went through it. They don't understand. Today's senior leaders, senior officers have been through that, and they understand the value of the original course. Uh, a general I know very well said, everybody needs it, but we can't put everybody through it. So what we're going to do is we're going to water down the program <laughs> so everybody can get through it. We're going to shorten it up and everybody's going to get to do it. Okay. Well, now you've taken away the meaning of that course. Also what made that it course, good. That's yeah, what made it what, good was the rigor. That's what made it was the, oh yeah. And it was rigorous, mm -hmm. you know? They, they, for, you know, I think it was like three months stressed to the max mm -hmm. because they were thrown so much. And I had so much respect for the course and the general and I would go to, I don't want to say go to blows, but we argued in his office over the watering down process of it. And I said, you can't do that. You know, even though I had never attended it, I said, you can't do that because you're going to water it down. My fear with this airman for life is that somewhere somebody's going to say we can do this, but we don't need to do it every, every week. We don't yep. need to do it once a month. Yep. We don't need to do it. We can do, we can this do one day per one year day. and we can fit one, it all in. Yep. We can fit it all in. And that way we have all this, you know, time, money and resources, but what they're overlooking is, you know, what you, what you read in the two books that I referenced before, you have to understand the, the um, generation that it applies to. And right now, these airmen 
and I use the airmen in the capital A sense right. because they're NCOs and senior NCOs. The airmen today that have developed, designed and developed Airmen for Life have done it because they understand their target audience better than anybody else. And that's why I think it's so valued uh, in its application. Yeah. And for the record, I'm going to say this. I am so proud of Ashley Lett for all of what she's what she's doing with this program. Yeah, I'm really proud of all of the um, people that were involved in it. The the people on the ground in Aviano that kind of uh, created and birthed it and found an opportunity. And then there's also uh, other officers at higher levels that have been really championing culture change. So like sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Certainly, if you listen to this podcast, it doesn't feel like it. But there are people that are spending a lot of hours per day mm -hmm. trying to turn the massive boat of maintenance culture and Air Force culture, but maintenance culture specifically. And it's so good to see the initiatives, the Airmen for Life, the theory of constraints at uh, Okinawa or in Kadena, which I'm still trying to get uh, more information on to learn more about it. Um, but there's people making moves and I think they're making moves at, at risk that if they fail, it's going to be a pretty big failure, but that's what we need. Like we need people that are willing to take risks to do bold things because incremental change in aircraft maintenance has always trended towards worse, not better. Like there needs to be like some bold movement. And I appreciate uh, a lot of these uh, leaders that are, that are grabbing it and doing it. Um, so if you happen to be at one of those places, comment, uh, on the Facebook page for this podcast, let me know what your thoughts are or send me a private message. But also, um, I think it's, I think you should appreciate what you have because what you have is not at a lot of other bases right now. So that's what I would say. Yep. It's, it's certainly a very, very good thing. Uh, I wish we'd have had, um, airmen who, who felt that way more often and I, I i and and i say that and i did i had people who who honestly cared about other individuals and those are the ones that i used and i would try and um link up with and i know i've said his name before but uh, andy eckhart when i was at, in the little rock was a young airman uh he was that guy that was cared about people. He had a true care for the airmen. Uh, now you screwed up. You were in trouble because he was a big dude. Yep. And so you tried really not to, to screw up, but I always wanted to make him proud of everything that I did because he cared. And the number of people that actually cared, you know, were, were a lot less than what I think there are today. And they cared differently. Let me just say they cared differently. And going back to the chief's meme, you yeah. know, that was a different group of people. The people that raised me in the air force were Vietnam veterans and Vietnam era veterans. So they had a different perspective and, and some of them were there because it was either be drafted into the army or join the air force. Right. So their, their perspective on things were different. It's a lot different than the, than the volunteer, all volunteer force that we have today. Yeah. The air force hasn't changed in what it does, but it's the people that make up the air force have changed 
based on their generation. Okay, so I know you have a few more points to talk about, uh, but I'm I've been writing notes the whole time, so you gotta let me know when I get to start volleying back at you. But uh, so what what do you got next? You want the, well, what so so I think that the Air Force needs to determine um, some of the root causes to some of the issues that are going on. Okay, the the root causes, um, for instance, um, if you go to their resiliency webpage. What it does is it points directly to the individual. Okay. All of the material on their webpage is about the individual and the individual's resiliency. And I think we all know and understand that there's more to the issue than just the individual. Now, we talked about the generations and how they, you know, how they are. And I think that has a lot to do with it. But I also think that there's all there has a lot to do with how the Air Force operates in and of itself. Okay, and I should say the Air Force. I think the Department of Defense has a way of doing it. But once again, we go back to that is a way of life, not a job. However, they truly need to get to the root of the cause. They need to understand the generation, but they also need to look inward. By looking inward, they need to take a look at what are some of the factors of their strategy and their operational and tactical approach that are affecting the generation of today. It, you, you have to approach it from a different perspective, I think. And, by, and we'll go back to the 12-hour shift thing. That has to be the bar, bar none, the exception over the rule to put people on 12-hour shifts. I understand for exercises, that's kind of how it works. But every single day, you shouldn't have to have your people on a 12-hour shift because it gives them no opportunity to, um, to have a life of their own that they can accept and when I took that phone call from the chief as I was driving across the country, what they were deep in the heart of the the overwhelming number of suicides that were going on. Mm-hmm. And you kind of alluded in the past as to, you know, what your perspective was on the uh, ramping up of suicides. So here's what I'll say, because you kind of touched in the very beginning of this podcast about how you went to civilian resiliency training, it was hyper similar to what the Air Force was doing for resiliency training. And and clearly it's because the Air Force probably took all the academic studies from the civilian sector on resiliency. But here's the thing, when you're on the civilian sector and you need to learn how to be resilient, it's because there's a myriad of environments that that civilians exist in, either unemployed, impoverished, living in this place, living in that place, living in Wyoming in the middle of nowhere, or working at a Fortune 500 company, working at a hardware store, working, and it's there are different rules, different hours, different state laws for employment. Like the the scope of of a lived life in the civilian sector is so broad and so diverse that to try to wrap your mind and arms around how to make 
the world a better place in order to reduce suicides is ridiculous. It's not feasible, and you would be laughed out of every academic setting on the planet if you tried to, you know, pr present such an idea. But the reality is, military service is unique, as we've talked about. It is its own microculture, its own micro society, and it has its own social norms and all these things. But the reality is, the Air Force controls, the DOD controls their culture, their environment. They get to pick where people live. They get to pick what job they do. They get to pick, you know, the resources available to them. The people can't quit realistically. So when the Air Force, much like you said, with the resiliency, the website goes to the individual and talks about the individual. When the Air Force co-ops or when the Air Force borrows from the civilian sector, they're using the wrong tool, or I guess I should say, they're using the easier tool. Because when you pull that resiliency template from the civilian sector that is individual focused, you can give the appearance that you're making things better. And when I say give the appearance, that sounds really nefarious. It could be that they either don't have faith that they can do the broad uh, cultural changes, they didn't even consider it, um, whatever the, the kind of reason might be. But the thing that I get frustrated with time and time again is, the Air Force perpetuates an environment or culture that causes people, uh, I call it psychological harm, distress, all these things. But all they focus on is how do I make my people tougher so they can withstand this sort of thing? Like, I get it. I'm big on resiliency, but I also am frustrated that the Air Force is the abuser in a lot of these situations. And then it's like sending their people to the therapy and the counseling. It's like, well, you can send them to counseling and therapy, but let's maybe tone down the abuse a little bit, which goes back to the point I made a couple episodes where aircraft maintenance is hard. It is, it is a hard life. It is a difficult life. It is stressful because mistakes can either kill you, kill a coworker, kill a pilot, kill mm -hmm. people on the ground where it's, people don't realize it. There's all the jokes. It is mentally challenging, like reading schematics and trying to figure out which valve is the one that's causing this problem based on the data that you get. The, the diversity for systems, you're talking avionics, it used to be A, B, and C shop, then it was lumped mm -hmm. into one. You're talking about crew chiefs that are bouncing from F-15s to A-10s and then over to C-5s and, and all these things. Like the amount, you know, and I was talking to somebody the other day, like, this isn't me necessarily bragging, but I used to troubleshoot JFS problems so much that I can I can sit and listen to an F-16 start and I can listen to the JFS and I can tell you if it's if it's working right. And if it's working wrong, I can probably tell you what's wrong with it. And there's mm -hmm. probably a lot of F-16 crew chiefs that are listening going, yeah, I can do the same. Like I can hear, yes. I can hear delayed ignition. Certainly you can hear the chugging. We were talking clutch servo and or clutch servo connector. And you're already thinking, I wonder if it has the old style connector or the new boot connector. Like you, these are all the things you're thinking of. There's a lot of information in my noodle that is, that you don't realize it, it, it takes. So I guess what I'm saying is like, it is a, it is a complex job. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of stressful things. And it's, it's enough, it's enough stress. But when you pile on, 
you know, PT tests that are career altering where your best technicians get kicked out for PT uh, that work yes. 12 hours or some crazy oh. amount of hours and, and, and they're keeping your mission going and now you kick them out the door because they didn't get to work out. When you're talking about, um, you know, when the COVID thing hit, a bunch of commands were like, well, activate your family care plan. It's like, do you not understand that everyone potentially has COVID? I can't put my kids with these other people. This is this is not a feasible thing. You're going to have to reduce. Or the conversation I had um, on, on episode 39 with Dr. Smith, where I realized the Air Force very likely probably doesn't calculate in 10% of their of their female service members are going to be pregnant at any given time and they should man appropriately for those things. And, and now there's this stress of you have to pick the health of your unborn child over your career or the perception that you're getting out of things like the air force manufactures air shows on weekends when you're already like, you know, struggling to make sorties where every sortie matters. Um, you know, you think about all the stuff the air force piles on that's, that's the part that drives me mad, like mm -hmm. absolutely mad. Like aircraft maintenance is hard. It's a tough life. It's rewarding. You build great bonds, great friendships, and you're, that is the mission. When you talk about what is the air, it's fly, fight, and win. It's not run a mile and a half. It's not, you know, all these things. It's, it's none of these the ancillary things. And, and I think, man, I'm getting back on the soapbox, but I'll be quick on it. I think, all of these individual responsibilities or requirements the Air Force has levied on their force, they never took an aggregate of how much time are we really taking from our people when we shift these things to their personal time? And I think individually, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of time, but when you add it all up, that's what the service member is experiencing. When you're talking, you know, how many hours did I add up for PT tests with, it was like 300 or some hours a year. You're talking school, you're talking volunteerism. And then when Cody dropped the course 15 and said, if you don't do this in a year, everyone's, you're not gonna be able to reenlist or promote. And like, those are all personal time. And each one individually doesn't seem to take a lot of time. But when you're running into 12 hour shifts that turn into 14 hour shifts and then sleep, like as human beings, unfortunately, we require sleep. It's just the, the nature of our existence. <laughs> And then also maintaining relationships, which, you know, that's important because your spouse, like, think about how much your spouse does for the military through their helping around the house, or they have secondary income, or they are taking the kids to those appointments that you can't go to, or, you know, you know just the, the, the impromptu informal therapy session when you come home, like, like my ex-wife, she still remembers the name of the really shitty seven level I was on swing shift with in 2005 that was lazy, that wouldn't pull his weight. They still remember it because I would come home and I would unburden myself with how, how frustrating that was. Like spouses give a tremendous amount of benefit, but when the Air Force doesn't give us time to spend with them and to nurture those relationships, that's another casualty. And we're making the people choose because we're stealing so much of their time from them yep. that it, it becomes an impossible thing and something gives, right? So the divorce happens, the they get out, the PT fail, or they stop trying at work, whatever. Like there has to, as a human being, there has to be a give. And I mean, that's where we're at. So uh, yep. circling back, the Air Force needs to start addressing the culture they're creating, not just people's individual resiliency and reaction to that culture. I, I, I agree. 
And I will tell you that the Air Force from time to time does try. And I use the word try. They do try. Uh, I remember, gosh, I want to say it was in the late 90s where they went through a time where people were spending a lot of time in ancillary training. And they said, we need to give time back to our folks and we're going to take a look at all of the ancillary training. Now, those of us who attended a lot of ancillary training, we thought this was going to be great. You know, they were going to cut a lot of stuff that just made no sense. Now, what they ended up doing was taking it out of the classroom or off of a slideshow and they put it on the computer because none of the none of the um, directorates, if you will, wanted to give up the training that they thought was important to everybody instead of asking people. And they did ask some people, but. They did, I don't think they got enough feedback or something. But anyway, it went from in-class training to CBT time. And they were just, they absolutely just went haywire with the CBTs. Haywire. And it ended up being more training than less. Because they thought that that was going to be the uh, cure-all. Because in their brain, people sit behind a desk all day. And they can just pull it up on their computer and they can run through it. Whereas you know, maintenance, you're fighting for a computer to sit down, to do your training, to do your, you know, um, IMDS or, you know, cams or whatever it was that, you know, you're doing at the time. Writing the yards, writing the decorations, everybody was, there weren't enough, literally you couldn't put enough computers in an organization for everybody to get their stuff done. And then yep. we expected them to ensure that their training was done and we would fight for every computer that we ever got and had to justify in triplicate, you know, essentially uh, reaching back to the old mash days, you know, you need to put that rec requisition in triplicate because, you know, we need to hand it to 42 different people before we will approve, you know, your cup of coffee or in this case, the computer. And then you had to justify all the time why you needed to keep that computer. Well, it also goes to when you shift this training to CBTs, um, and I think, I don't know, again, it goes to you're my chief sounding board, so I have to, like, test you to see if this may, like, no one does CBTs. They click through. They have the answers on a piece of paper that a bunch of maintainers share with each other. And I hope with maintainers are like, oh, shit, he's given our secrets. Just hide your <laughs> shit better is what I'll say. Like they like the info protection, the info assurance. When you're talking about the dude trying to give his mixtape or the dude taking your cell phone or you're doing none of that. That's not good. You don't learn anything. You're, you're requiring people to do that every year. And by the way, it's mm -hmm. not every year. It's every 10 and a half months because it has to be done a month prior to when it's due. Yep. And the yep. staff meeting is halfway through the month. Mm -hmm. So if yep. it's on the slide and it's showing mm -hmm. red, even though you're not actually overdue, your, your flight chief is going to have to answer for it. And as I've talked about numerous times, most flight chiefs are cowards and they hate answering any question that's ever, they want to go into a meeting with no questions. And it's just like, are they a, a mute? I don't understand why you can't just say no. 
or I don't know. But so what happens is, is at the 10 and a half month mark, then they're threatened. You will come in this Saturday if you don't do this training, the training that they're going to pencil whip anyway, the training they're not going to learn anything from. Because, by the way, nothing has changed in info assurance, info protection since I don't know when that 2009 or something like that. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. The Air Force crams CBTs down the throat. And this is one more of those things that is done on their personal time. Because reality is when your job is to produce sorties, you're going to spend all of your work hours in that endeavor because it goes back to what I was talking about. You're trying to clear your plate because whatever is left today is going to be on your plate tomorrow. And it's going to be another 12 and another 12. You're going to work really hard to get that done. And at the end, then you're going to try to do info protection. And that's instead of going home and seeing your family for the hour or hour and a half or however long it takes, or go to the gym or all these other things. And, and, and what's frustrating is everyone knows it's worthless. And, and if you're listening to this and you're in a position of authority and this has shocked you to learn this, retire. You're done. If you're this disconnected, go on to greener pastures. I will tell you uh, that once again, if a chief doesn't understand that people are going to have those answers, um, they're living in a in a hole. Okay, but here's a here's an example of coming in on the weekend to do training, um, and I would sit in the uh, staff meeting and. I would provide answers to these things. And one day, you know, I was over the course of a you know, couple of weeks or whatever. I, you know, I understand, you know, people sitting around, if you have training to do, do you have time to get some training done? If you do and the computers are open, giddy up, get it done. You know what you have to do this month, get it done, get it done before the last day and get it done before, you know, I um, have to tell your section chief, to get it done, you know, and I would walk through the break room and say, Hey, training done. Yep. Yep. Got it done. Everything's done. Okay. And same person was in there, you know, several times that I walked through and I would ask the same question in the break room, you know, Hey, everybody got their training done. And, you know, cause it, it was just one of those things that if you're sitting around, not doing something in a civilian world, you're not going to get paid for just sitting there not doing yeah. something. But in the Air Force, you're going to get paid even though you're sitting there doing nothing. However, if you have things that you should be doing, well, then you should be getting them done. One individual would say yes every time. Come the end of the month, he didn't have it done. And so I went into the section chief and I said, so what's the story? I really don't know. Okay. Well, if you don't know, then I'm going to know this for you. Um, you and this airman will be in here this weekend doing training. He's going to do the training. You're going to be doing the watching. If you can't in your own house, ensure that the people are getting trained and have the time and you're not plugging that into their, into their day of, of time, then you get to sit in here with this individual and maybe you two will learn that it's important enough to get the training done. Some of the training is important. Some of it, not important. 
Okay. <laughs> but the but the but the perspective is it doesn't matter if it's important training or not important training. If it's a requirement, it's a requirement. The requirement is the requirement. And until the requirement changes, you're still required to do it. And no amount of, you know, gnashing of teeth or, you know, screaming and yelling is it going to change. And until the directorate at the higher headquarters decides that this is no longer training that needs to be done, you still have to get it done, whether you like it or not. And the individual chose not to do it, even though I asked him, saw him sitting there, asked him, I can remember three times asking the question. And when they, I brought him in, there was, you know, kind of some hemming and hawing, but the bottom line was, is the expectation wasn't met. You didn't achieve the expectation, especially when prompted by the senior enlisted leader in your organization. That's fair. So I want to go back to talking about adversity and then challenge. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I have a teenage daughter and (laughs) the benefit of being 42 is I can look back at what I wish I had known, right? Like that's essentially what life is. Um, This could be argued that's what this podcast is, right? Like (laughs) I wish I had known these things when I was a staff sergeant senior airman. So here you go, right? I asked her, so she got a car, paid for it herself. Good on her. She bought it. She saved up. She bought it outright, not even car payments. Like she went out and bought a car. Wow. Good for her. Right. Very good for her. Um, she pays her insurance. She has a job on the weekends. Wow. She has a cell phone that she pays her cell phone bill. Right. Holy crap. So your, your reaction tells me that this is unique, but this feels like this is like a normal, this feels normal to me. Like this is, I, I felt like this is like, this is how it should be. But I asked her, she had her car for like two or three weeks. And I said, have you read your car's manual yet? She's like, no, I'm like, you should definitely read your manual. Like there's good information in there. You'll know, um, how everything works. And then the weather started getting nicer here. I could see like in the five day forecast that one day in particular was going to be warm and, and nice and. So I decided on that day I was going to have her change her tire on her car. Well, it's not even really change it. I want you to jack it up, pull it off, take the spare out of the trunk, put the original tire back on. I don't want you to put the spare on your car. You don't need to do that. And then put your spare back in the trunk. Mm -hmm. It's like a proof of concept, right? Because where I live, there's spaces that you'll be where there's no cell signal. So there's no YouTube. There's no calling AAA. There's no options. You're on the side of the road. It's And it can be cold where you can freeze to death. So I wanted her to do her tire on a nice day in my driveway where I was available to her. But I told her, I'm, I'll be available if you have questions. You can come to me in an infinite amount of time, but I want you to read your manual. I want you to go on the internet. I want you to teach yourself how to change a tire, but I will be here if you have any questions. And it took... I think two or three hours and it was, I went out. So the first I said, I would like to be out here bef- be- when you place the Jack, cause it needs to be very specific. And if you do that wrong, you know, I just want to make sure I'll, I'll want to spot check that. 
but it was couldn't get the hubcap off, couldn't break loose the lugs, couldn't, um, I mean, there was a lot of couldn'ts, right? And, the, and then, you know, she was just frustrated and angry and probably angry at me for making her do it and all these things. And she got all done and she had this big exhale. There was a lot of emotions. And I said, good job. Do you think you could do it at 10 o'clock at night in the middle of nowhere without the use of the internet or calling AAA? She's like, well, I've done it once. I'm like, right. Do you think you could do it perfectly again from memory in the dark with just your cell phone as a light? She says, no, I don't think I could. I said, so what does that mean? She's like, I don't know. I said, it means you need to do it again. So next week, I'll let you pick the day, but you're going to change your tire again. And then she came up to me on Monday. She's like, dad, I'm going to do my tire today so I can get it done and out of the way, which is already a good mindset. And I think she was done in 20 minutes. And I think she barely referenced the internet, if at all. And I said, okay, you've done it twice. How long did that take? 20 minutes. Do you think you could do it in the dark in the middle of nowhere with no cell signal? She's like, I'm pretty sure. And I'm like, are you sure? Or are you pretty sure? She's like, I'm only pretty sure. I think I should do it one more time. I'm like, you want to do it one more time? I'm okay if you don't. She's like, I'll do it one more time. I'll say, okay, when you do it again, grab your sister and show and show her as you go, her younger sister. And the reason I did that was there's lots of reasons, right? One, you, sometimes you don't get to pick the time to learn how to do the task, right? And a flat tire uh, is a very foreseeable event inevitably someone's going to get a flat tire. I mean, I was like, remember that time I was on the side of the highway and cars were zipping by and I was changing the tire? Like, no, I don't remember. I was like, yeah, you guys were like on your iPads or whatever. So you didn't pay attention to the fact that your dad was uh, five feet from 70 mile an hour traffic. But it's also because this is what I've learned is the teenage years is the time to do all the failure things because if she failed, I was right there available. If she goes out and gets a job and gets fired, she's not homeless. She still gets fed. She still gets all these things. It goes back to the whole parenting and adversity thing. Like, go. Like, go out. Because if you screw up, your life is still going to be okay. Like, this is the time. But it's also building a a mental and emotional bank account of I've done challenging things. I figured these things out. It was hard, but I've done it. I have faith that I can do it again. And that's what that whole change in the tire thing was. I'm, I'm sure when I told her, she's like, I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to crush myself. I'm going to destroy my car. There's all these doubts. And after she got it done, it wasn't as bad as she thought. She now knows that if she needs to do something else on her car, she has a foundation of confidence that kind of comes with that from overcoming the challenge, right? And to tie this back into the Air Force culture and maintenance, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to have an AFITS guy on here pretty soon to talk about how we use AFITS in, in 107s entirely too much. And what that's doing is we're not letting, and it sounds so counterintuitive to what I have been saying for this podcast, but if you go back and read the article on the 20 Years Done uh, website, so what's with the seven levels? The reason I became a good seven level is because I got my ass thoroughly kicked for like nine months on landing gear and especially the start system. And I became 
exceptional at troubleshooting the start system and doing maintenance on the start system because of that adversity and that challenge. So that growth, growth happens with adversity and challenge. And the Air Force is for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, because they've been so resource restricted, they need that jet now. They always need the jet now. The re also, the reality is, spoiler for any uh, expediters or pro supers out there, unless you are in Afghanistan or flying over Syria, you don't actually need the jet now. Like, not really. You have time to let your people figure it out and struggle and grow. And that was, that was my expediter, Brian Ingram. He wouldn't, he probably knew the answer for a lot of things, but he would let me sit there and struggle night after night, even though it was keeping him late because he was my expediter. He would walk through the schematics with me and at, answer any questions, but I was still there figuring it out. And from my experience, and maybe my experience is unique, but judging by uh, Curtis's reaction, it, it isn't. There seems to be when a jet is hard broke or a jet comes back code three repeatedly, there's a very much a knee-jerk reaction from group leadership of, Affitz, I want you out there. And the next day, let's submit a 107 to the engineers, which, by the way, engineers are smart. But they're much smarter when it comes to tolerances. Like you can say, I've measured this. Is this okay? Yes, we can figure that all out. But when you're asking engineers to troubleshoot, I think a lot of people are mis are mis uh, prioritizing um, this experience of troubleshooting and and system knowledge with the experience of being on the ground and observing the direct behaviors of the jet. Like that is super valuable. You just need people to ask you questions. Or people have to figure it out. Like when you're troubleshooting a start system, sometimes it's like watching it. Okay, what is it really doing? And an engineer is not going to be able to get that information. And I think a lot of times when we reach out to AFITs to take over and engineers to do our troubleshooting for us, it gets us that short-term gain of, yeah, you're getting your jet fixed, but you're losing out on a tremendous opportunity to challenge your people, to give them the space to fail, to have, because how do you learn? You learn from failures. You know, I got good at the start system was from changing the wrong shit over and over and over again until I finally did the thing that needed to be done. I was like, okay, when it's doing this, it's usually this. Got it. Okay, now I know that. And I know that because I changed these five other wrong things and the behavior persisted. It, it, takes, it, it takes time. It's expensive to grow people, but that's the... That's the adversity and the challenge. And by the way, when you give people the latitude to fail at work and be challenged and grow, those same cognitive pathways, that confidence in your ability to adapt and succeed, that's going to apply to relationships. That's going to apply to PCSs and go into new bases. Because when I went to a new base, I was like, I don't fucking know anybody here, but I sure as shit know how to troubleshoot a start system. So when the first jet no starts, I'm going to be out there and they're going to be like, oh, okay, this new guy knows exactly what he's doing. Like it cross pollinates. It's the same things that's happening in your mind. And, and we've been robbing people of it and don't even get me started. And I'll probably speak in my ignorance here. Don't even get me started on the F 35s Alice system that does troubleshooting for you. Like, what are we doing here? Like you're actually going to have the jet. Like I get it's convenient, but what happens the one time the jet doesn't know what the problem is? You've now atrophied the troubleshooting cognitive abilities of your entire maintenance force that the first time the jet runs into something it hasn't seen before, 
they're going to be gelatinous blobs that don't know how to do anything. So they're waiting. And then, you know, Lockheed is the one that can kind of do these things for you. You've literally stoved piped knowledge and experience in a company that's going to charge you money. Anyway, I got to get off that soapbox. That's going to be something that I'll just spend for entirely too long. All I'm going to say is um, challenge and adversity leads to growth. And you have to, you, it, 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 you have to let your people struggle. You have to. I learned how to fix airplanes the uh, same way you did. Uh, I was allowed to fail. I had a lot of mechanical abilities coming into the Air Force, um, but I was still allowed to fail and learn from my failures by my, by my supervisors and trainers. Uh, and I think that that's very important that not everybody comes into the leaders have to understand that not everybody comes into the Air Force and out of technical school and technical training, though we would like to think so. And certain people tell you that they're trained up to do the thing. Be willing to understand that they're not going to know it and allow the failure to happen as long as the failure isn't so substantial that somebody's going to get hurt or killed. Um, let them grow and let them grow by having somebody, you know, watch what was going on and making sure that you're doing it correctly. And I literally could go on a long diatribe of airmen doing tasks that they weren't proficient at and being left to do it by themselves only for them to have failed in a very catastrophic, violent, yeah. catastrophic way. Yep. And they could have, it, all it would have taken was the, the NCO or the trainer or the supervisor to, you know, let them go through it. But hey, don't push that button because if you push that button, you're going to shoot a flare across the ramp. Yep. Okay. Why didn't you remove the buckets? All of those things, you know, stop them when they make a critical mistake. But let them get to the point where they're about to make the critical mistake and then stop them and say, okay, <laughs> here's what was about to happen, you know, and then, and then take them through that process. But nobody wants to take that time. And I think that's part of not dealing through the adversity of, of task and adversity of, of learning the new job and being new to the air force. It's all folds in together. It really does. You have to understand the people that you have. You have to understand the task. You have to understand the mission. You have to understand it all in order for the airmen to not get so down and depressed that they ultimately want to take their life. Yeah. And I think a lot of, so, and also just to kind of put a, a period on this particular point, when you have this culture of denying adversity and challenge for the sake of expedience, which is really what we're talking about. Let's get the jets fixed fast. We don't have time to let these people struggle. When that persists, now you're looking at staffs and techs that didn't develop when they were airmen when they were supposed to. And now you have airmen where the staffs and tech, and I'm not saying all staffs and techs, I'm just saying this culture naturally will create this vacuum this experience vacuum of somebody persists long enough because of the way the promotion system in the air force is we are going to promote the top 40 percent no matter what 
Like that's it. That's the end all be all. And when you have an automatic promotion and then you get more and more dilution of experience in, in your force, you're running into staffs and techs that don't have foundational experience. And then it's, uh, the airmen have less people to go to that can teach them because the people they're going to also don't know. So like it's a, it's a rolling sort of, uh, catastrophe of if we don't start slowing down and allowing our people to struggle and learn, which by the way, the longer it goes, the more expensive in time it's going to be because you're not just teaching, letting the senior or young staff struggle, the tech that's running Candoc or the tech that's an expediter who is just barely keeping his head above water through micromanagement and all these other things kind of shoring him up. He's also needs to learn troubleshooting and all these things as well. Um, so instead of having 10 people do it, you're now looking at 20 or 30. And if the longer it goes on, what happens when these people become pro supers? What happens when these people become chiefs and they're sitting in a, uh, a, a, a morning meeting in the AMU and, and the inexperienced senior airman changed the deflict for the fifth time and the expediter didn't check him on it because he didn't have a background where he could understand why that's not a good fix. And the pro super may not even been the same AFSC as a avionics, but they also don't have a strong uh, background. And now you're the chief and you've grown up in this culture where you never learned all of these things and now you're at a deficit you, and you don't have the confidence and you don't want to look dumb because you don't know the system theory. You're the chief. So there's like a huge ego uh, tension there. And then your lieutenant goes up to the group and you have a colonel who's been doing this for 35 years or whatever who knows everything and he just beats the crap out of everybody. And that's how like this cycle like persists. And then he goes, oh, these people don't know what they're doing. Let's get affits in here. Let's get a 107. And, and that's the way it is. Like it, it, this is uh, of the self-licking ice cream cones. This is the biggest one in maintenance, I feel. Yes. Um, and over the course of time, I watched Affitts and 107s become more of a, of a norm and it was really bothering me. But one of the things that I, when I was growing up in the Air Force, we had the big thick books. We had the, that's what we used every day. We didn't, we didn't have the job guides. We had to use the big thick TO that had theory of operation in it. As you're yep. reading through it, he gave you the theory of operation as you were doing the steps. So in other words, you did the step and it told you why you had to do that step. And it, yeah. it taught you the understanding of that. They took all of that away and then they had to end up creating this, this other entity of affets to fill the gap mm. that no longer existed in writing because People thought it was going to be too much for people to read. It was just too over too. We're trying to make it streamlined. We're trying to help the airmen and in their efforts of helicopter parenting in yep. the air force, they have stripped the, their ability to trust the people to learn, to do the job. Yep. What else so, you got Curtis? And then you got more. You know, I, 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 you know, I don't have too much more. Uh, I think that the Air Force, you know, just to kind of get to the run this in, the Air Force needs to determine its root causes for a lot of these issues. And we talked about a lot of the stuff that we believe is causing some of these challenges uh, within our Air Force and our um, resiliency in there. And, and, 
I don't want to say don't don't read what's out there for resiliency because it doesn't matter because it really does. And you really should read what's out there, understand it, but leave the, leave the, the traditional aspect of your learning and open your mind to other ways of what's going on. And and I'm going to be totally honest with you. That didn't happen for me until after I left the air force. Yeah. Okay. And I, I would really like for no, for, to have nobody else make that same, I don't want to even, I don't want to call it a mistake because it really wasn't a mistake. It, you don't know what you don't know. And as I started reading more literature and books and understanding a little bit more, it's very, very important that all of the leaders out there understand the people and understand the generation and understand what motivates them and what doesn't motivate them. And they have to be able to trust. And my bottom line here is leaders need to be servant leaders. Servant leaders serve their people. Don't be a selfish leader. Trust your people, back them up when, you know, when they need to be backed up and empower, empower your airmen and just straight up understand the generation that you're leading. Cause if you don't, you're not going to get there from here. You're going to struggle and they're going to struggle. And what's going to ultimately happen is our airmen are going to get stressed out. They're going to become depressed and they're going to select a path that is not conducive to anybody, which is usually suicide. Yeah. And here's, here's a point I'll put on it. Uh, I couldn't find a good place to to wedge in the conversation. I, I think I think the Air Force or people in general don't realize how much resiliency relies on hope, hope that things are going to get better, which is manifest with uh, the culture changes or the you know I, I argue that until the Air Force admits they made mistakes in managing the force. I personally don't have hope it's going to get better. I love to see the Airmen for Life. I love to see the theory of constraints. I love to see these Air Force officers that are out in these pockets of the Air Force, like expanding their control and, and making controlling, you know, making things better that they can control. But until the Air Force comes out and says, and also I could be wrong on this, I could definitely be wrong on this, but I think the the data that we have, the data that they're uh, refusing to give me and the conversations I've had, you know, we're on episode 41 now, the conversations that I've had is the Air Force messed up. And until they kind of come to terms with that and admit it, which I also, I don't understand why you can't admit it. It's not like the current leadership screwed up the Air Force. The Air Force leadership is always inherited from the previous leadership. And if you can say, okay, we made some critical errors in aircraft maintenance here, here, and here. These are the inflection points where you can see all these things trending, where you can see ARIs going up, suicides going up, sorties, whatever, all this data. Clearly, what happened at this time frame was probably a mistake because all of our indicators are trending in, in the incorrect, in the wrong direction here. And unless there's some wild other explanation, if if major moves happened and then everything trended worse or specific things trended worse, it's, it's perfectly logical to say that was probably not the right decision. We made a mistake there and you own it. 
And I think until the Air Force owns those mistakes, I don't have hope that they're going to correct those mistakes broadly. And so much of resilience relies on this is temporary. And that's also where suicide comes in, right? Like the difficulty I'm experiencing now is finite. There will be better stuff after this. I don't know how long, and that obviously plays into it too. Um, I have orders. Uh, my my enlistment is up. Uh, all of these myriad of things that can kind of provide a finish line for this sort of uh, dire situation. But if you if you go to resiliency training and you don't have faith that the Air Force is going to try to make things better, resiliency is a finite tank. And the Air Force is trying to increase the tank size. But the, re the, the reality is giving people hope that, you're, that you at least acknowledge what they're going through is not fair and that you are going to take positive steps to change it. And you're going to be accountable for those steps. You're going to be transparent with those steps. Like, I, I truly feel that if the Air Force came out and said, we screwed up, we, we need your help in solving this, we, we want to solicit ideas, and then when they get an action plan, present it, like almost like a continuous process improvement, like identify the problem. The problem is not suicides. As I've said more times than I can count, the suicide is the symptom of the problem. Yes. We have not identified sure. the problem. If the Air Force can identif correctly identify the problem and go, Let's find solutions. My hypothesis that I'm still struggling for data for, you know, I'm um, still still doing my appeals through FOIA, is uh, security forces and aircraft maintenance in particular have higher rates of suicide within the Air Force and then over the civilian sector. Like, let's get people from those areas. And, and I've, I think I've said it before, I would gladly give infinite unsolicited my thoughts, my opinions, I would sign an NDA. I would never have to take credit for it. I don't care. There's no glory here. I don't care. I just want to try to give an honest assessment for what it's like in aircraft maintenance to those with the power and authority to do something about it. But if they created a plan, do you know how much that would probably reduce suicides in and of itself without any other resiliency training? We screwed up. It's not good. Here are the key problems we want to address, and here's our plan to attack it, and we're going to keep you updated on what we're doing. Like, yeah, you'd still have to perform those things because aircraft yeah. maintainers are suspicious, right? Like, the whole thank a maintainer campaign, great, but the, but you're still screwing us over. Like, I don't, don't thank me. Stop doing this, and then you won't need to thank me anymore. Um, but... That that's what I'll say. I think I think the Air Force in general underestimates what hope will do for people's resilience. The belief that it will get better. Yes, and that's that's actually one of the key processes in suicide prevention is somebody has to have hope. Yep, and and you know? and suicide. Not to sound too dark, suicide is the natural evolution of sustained hopelessness. So yes, suicide prevention is talking about hope. It will get better, but you can have that conversation much earlier in that depressive continuum, if that makes sense. You can give yes. people hope much sooner. It requires less hope. And if you if you view the hope as the vehicle for making your force healthy, you'll you won't need to you you won't need you'll you'll be doing the hope uh, 
explanation, much less during suicide prevention, I'll say. That's, that's a pretty accurate assessment. I, I can't add to that. (laughs) Well, once again, you and I came together with a sheet of paper and we solved problems. I feel like, or we at least provided um, a better diagnosis, we'll say. And I, I would hope that our conversations are taken by, by airmen and, you know, hopefully some leaders and they'll listen to, you know, a couple of individuals who have been through some of the trials and tribulations of an Air Force career, uh, seeing some dark moments, seeing some bright moments and are able to say, okay, these, these guys, they kind of have a, 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 an understanding of what we're seeing. And wow, I never thought that, you know, I thought this was only happening now, but I guess it's been happening a while. And how did they deal with it? And how we deal with it is, is what we're here to talk about is how we're dealing with it, how we dealt with things and hopefully impart some of that assistance and knowledge and, you know, through conversation. And every time you and I have a conversation, it's goes down different rabbit holes. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And again, when you want to talk again, you know, just shoot me a message and and, uh, I'm all about it. Um, Other than that, again, uh, two hours done. Didn't feel like two hours. Um, But thank you for the taking the time. Like, sometimes I I don't articulate it well, or I I don't show my appreciation, but like you took two hours out of your day to walk through a a really detailed conversation about your experiences and about things going forward. Like I, like I just appreciate it. And I hope the listeners appreciate it too. And based on the downloads, at least some of them do. So, um, you know, that's a gift it's a gift. It's, it's something that, that I appreciate. I appreciate your time and I appreciate your thoughts. Well, Chris, it's been my pleasure and it's always my pleasure to, to talk about uh, something that I'm passionate about and my passion for my air force and my air force career and is means, means a lot to me and to be able to talk about it means even more. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do it. Yep. Okay. Well, other than that, I'll see you next time and adios.